And we are recording. We are. We are. Are you sure? I am relatively confident. <laughs> We're not going to be 20 minutes into this and you're going to go, uh, so here's the deal. So, hey, here's what happened. I always liked it, I always liked it when I would get home and one of the boys would say, okay, Dad, so here's what happened. Oh, that's the beginning of a story that you know is completely fabricated. <laughs> it's been woven for hours waiting right. for my arrival. That's been workshopped. <laughs> couple of different times. That's how a lot of my meetings with my clients would start out. So, okay, Miss Stephanie, so so here's what happened. Or what happened was, and I'm like, mm, I'm quite certain it did. How about we start with the truth? <laughs> oh, but why? When there are so many other paths we can take. Absolutely. How are you? I am good. How are you? I am fine. It's Friday. I'm always good when it's Friday. I'm always good when it's Friday. Hi, friends. How are you? How was your week? It was fantastic. I got a lot of stuff done this week. I didn't get to talk to you much since Labor Day. What did you do over Labor Day? Um, What did I do over Labor Day? The children had some friends over, and that was fun. It's always nice to have the house full of life. And somehow when their friends are over, they actually, like, talk to me, as opposed to when they're there by themselves, and I'm, like, superfluous. They hole up in their room as though they're being held hostage. Right. Well, you would think Stockholm Syndrome would eventually <laughs> kick in, right? I, I don't understand it. But it's always fun to have them around because they have pretty good friends. Right. And it's usually the friends that are the ones talking to you. And that's when your own kids realize, oh, well, you're not as stupid as I thought right. you were. I, you're still stupid, but right. you're just not as stupid as I thought you Maybe were. Maybe she doesn't suck as much as I thought she did. <laughs> oh, what would you do over Labor Day? Other than the kids. Did you go out anywhere? Did you guys do anything? I was over at your house for a you little bit. You were over at our house, and we had the foodstuffs. And delicious. They were delicious. And we watched that that thing on the Hulu. On the Hulu. <laughs> What's murders only. Only murders in, this, in the building. Only murders in the building. Yes, it's super fun. It is. It's a great show. I, I watched, uh, I'm, I'm all caught up. Okay, if you're caught up, I think we all know why Sting's kid was an asshole to Ross's son at the school. <laughs> I think that that has become evident. I think she's mixed her ponderables, but that's okay. So. Because, you know, why live in the real world when I have such a rich fantasy life? <laughs> oh, good. And you had a good week this week? Yeah. Good. I did. I got a lot of stuff done. Which Excellent. Sometimes working from home is like therapeutic for me. There's less distractions, fewer people in and out. Um, nobody wants to talk to me at home. There's no one there to talk to me. And the dogs are quiet. So a lot of times that's a good thing for me. I always liked it when I would come home in the middle of the day and Reggie, my, my dog from before, my past dog. In the before time, RIP Reggie. In the, <laughs> indeed. In the, going into the Wayback Machine. <laughs> And I'd come home unexpectedly in the middle of the day, and she'd be laying on her bed in the living room, and she'd lean her head back and look at me like, what? What are you doing home? Did you get fired? Right. Have you been stealing things? <laughs> You've been stealing things. So, <laughs> All right. What are we talking about this week? Remind me. I don't know, but don't you think we should tell the people who we are? Oh, hi. I'm Stephanie. <laughs> and I'm Steve. Okay. We may have that backwards. I don't know. We are actually interchangeable. We are largely the same person. It's one brain, no waiting. Right. It's it's really unfortunate. I I recently updated my healthcare directives and I had to remind my healthcare agent that upon my death somebody needed to make sure that the shared brain went back over to (laughs) Stephanie so that we could have one complete person. Yes, because it would be really sad if he had possession of it that day and things went south. Yes. And then I was left, you know, brainless. So Which I think a lot of people think I am most of the time. Anyway, probably a few people that listen to us think that. Right. That's that's an easy conclusion to come to after spending more than, I don't know, 30 seconds with us. Probably. I think that's probably fair. fair. So Um, what are we talking about today? We're talking about problem-solving courts today. So, You know, problem-solving court is sort of a, a regional thing. Sometimes they're called specialty courts or therapeutic jurisprudence court. Okay, I've never heard that last one. I think you're just making shit up now. Hi, I want to use multi-syllabic <laughs> words and make our listeners think I'm super smart. I'm not. I copied it straight out of a law review article. <laughs> no, but in in uh, other jurisdictions that I've actually practiced in, I have heard them referred to as specialty courts. Yes, specialty courts or problem-solving courts. I, I really like the name problem-solving courts because I think it helps to set expectations right up front. 
But to kind of preface this to a lot of people, they may think, well, isn't every court a problem-solving court? You go to court, you got a problem, they solve it. No, it isn't. It's an adversarial setting. And the really cool part about our problem-solving courts is, is just that. Everybody in the room is trying to help someone or a group of people to solve a particular problem. Yes. And now, in my familiarity with problem-solving courts begins and ends with the child needy care system which ultimately can turn adversarial. So if we can't, you know, if we can't get kids back home, if we can't get them reintegrated with their families, then we may move to terminate parental rights, at which point then it becomes adversarial. But up until then, and when I say up until then, I mean it could be one to two years. Up until that point, we're trying to provide resources, provide guidance, give, give positive reinforcement to families. And one of the things that I found interesting when I was doing a little bit of research getting ready for our podcast today, I was reading about problem solving courts I had never heard of before, like reentry courts and mental health courts and homeless courts. You know, I'd heard and we have locally, we have veterans court, we have drug court and we have child needy care. But it was just surprising to me to see some of these others. What's your experience well, for several years, I practiced in Las Vegas, which, good or bad, Las Vegas has its own very specific set of issues. And when I was there, I was actually the court-appointed attorney um, for a while for DUI court and uh, adult drug court. Um, I was a, did work with the city of Las Vegas, a lot of work with the city of Las Vegas. And maybe I could screw with this microphone just a little bit more. I, I think when we make extraneous <laughs> noises, I think it endears our listeners to us because, you know, who who doesn't want it? Maybe I could rustle some paper or right. chew some ice. I'm going to sit on my hands now. So um, in Las Vegas, I had passing interaction with all of these courts except for one. Um, we had DUI court. We had drug court. We had women in need court, which was called wing court. And those were, that court was specifically designed to help women who had been sex workers. And when I say Vegas has its own special set of problems, that's one of them. We had youth offender court that my particular judge that I was assigned to actually administered. We had veterans court. We had mental health court. We had habitual offender court, which was called hope court, which essentially was sort of a homeless court for adults. Um... And we had, after I had left Las Vegas, one of my colleagues, David Figler, was actually able to get a gaming specialty court um, approved. And now, is that it? Would that be for, for people who had a gambling addiction who were committing crime? Yes. Or, okay. Yes. Um, specifically, it's for people who were committing crimes in response to or because of feeding their gambling addiction. Gaming addiction, I'm sorry. I lived in Vegas long enough. You never call it gambling. You call it gaming. Because that makes it so much more church-like. Or... Right. Because if we don't say gambling, no one will think it's gambling. <laughs> <laughs> I'm running an illegal gaming operation. <laughs> yes, it oh, sounds so much more, I don't know, clean. So those are some of the courts that I was involved in. And I have not had as much experience as you had in the child and needed care courts. So, and in child needed care court, also we we have truancy court in there. So it's it's interesting though. You know, you talk about DUI court, and so I'm curious about that. Um, I'm assuming it operates like a drug court. Yes, it does. But you know, a lot of times when we think about DUI and somebody like myself who who started out practicing some criminal law and I don't anymore. Um, you know, a lot of times it's a first-time DUI or it might be a second in municipal court, but never handling anything beyond that. So is this first-time DUI? Is this a felony DUI? What are we What are we talking about? Well, in municipal court, it was for people who had had a second DUI or, and I, I think this is right, and I it's been a while since I did this, but there were, um, if you had a first DUI and after speaking with your attorney or with the judges and things like that, they would admit you into DUI court if it was apparent that you were having interactions with the criminal justice system that were directly related to alcohol consumption. So that's an interesting concept, admit you into that court. So this isn't preordained that because you've committed X crime that you're going to be able to get into this court. No, you had to qualify. And my judge specifically ran 
the youth offender court, and in order to be admitted to the court, your family had to sign on because it was a family affair. Well, and it, and it should be, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, now, I, I don't, th- this is not a judgment. It's no. just that for a lot of people, that lack of community support is 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 really, I think, what the missing link is in being able to help to ensure that their children get onto the right path. So by bringing everybody in, I think that also does, well, let me ask you, does it also help to bring the community in? Yes, it does. Um, one of the things I, I, I did want to mention about Youth Offender Court was that if the parents didn't sign on, they didn't get in. And which is sad. I, but, Absolutely. But there's also a reality of maybe a parent's busy working three jobs. Right. And that was taken into consideration. There was always outreach from the coordinators, the social workers, the, the counseling team to try to find out why the parent was reluctant to sign on. It was very rare that it didn't happen. And when it did, if I'm remembering correctly, we would try to funnel them into a different specialty court because there was some overlap between okay. the, the co-occurring... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? I really have no idea, but we should have long periods of silence. <laughs> I'm sure that'll encourage people to stay with us. <laughs> because nothing is better on a podcast than dead air. <laughs> Co-occur- like comorbidities, like co-occurring addictions or things like that. Okay, okay. Yeah. And the Youth Defender Court was specifically for kids from 18 to 24 who were having problems with the criminal justice system related to their addiction. So... I'm just blathering here, but I do want to take some time to talk about where... She says it like it never happens. Right. I blather a lot. <laughs> welcome. Welcome. Um, according to a Fordham, uh, Fordham University Urban Law Journal from 2003, uh, well, let me ask you this. This is a better way to do it. See, this is I like that we workshop this actually live I, I, in the pod. Hey, I think it really lets people know that um, we're professionals. <laughs> Clearly, we do this all the time. For a living. You'll want to actually you'll want to reach out to us on how to become podcast millionaires. And how to really, really sell a presentation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Nothing says I know my shit like bumbling over it while you're trying to talk about it. (laughs) Or let me start a sentence. Oh, no, wait. I think I should say it this way. Okay. So clearly I don't practice this, but here we go. Steve, what year do you think the first problem-solving specialty court started? Well, if, if we exclude like a child needed care court, for example, because there's always been, I think, some form of that type of court, though it may not have may not have absolutely been problem solving in nature at the time. I, I would be surprised if there was one more than twenty years old. Well, according to the Fordham University Urban Law Journal that I read, the first specialty court came out of Chicago in eighteen ninety nine. Okay. Um, math isn't my thing, but that seems like that would be longer than 20 years that ago. That is, in fact. <laughs> okay. That, no, what was it? What was the court? Um, Cattle Rustlers Anonymous? Well, it kind of goes with your sink court. Or child in need of care in this particular jurisdiction is abbreviated to sink court. But it was in 1899, this particular court Because recognized- otherwise, if we made the C hard, it would be kink court. <laughs> and that's going to attract an entirely different audience. Which sets up a whole different set of problems. <laughs> Um, they recognized that the methods used in adult courts did not produce the same results as they did in juvenile courts, and they separated the two courts out. Interesting. I know. I thought so, that was really interesting. But here's the thing. You, you know, when we talk about juvenile court, like here, juvenile court is different. It's not a problem-solving court. It's an adversarial court, just like adult criminal court is. Um, but you're saying juvenile court in the terms of a problem-solving or specialty court. Right. And. And I, I think that it was the first time that perhaps the the justice system recognized that there wasn't a one-size-fits-all. Right, right. No, I get that. Absolutely. And that there was a, a demarcation between what worked for juvenile, what would work for juveniles versus what would work for adults. But when we think about modern-day specialty courts, it was actually um, developed in Miami in the late 80s um, in response to the crack and crack cocaine epidemic. Because they recognize that 
processing nonviolent drug possession charges in the criminal courts and sentencing the offenders to prison did not create success in changing the underlying addiction slash addictive behavior. So in 1989, the modern day problem solving court was born. Interesting. Interesting. I, was, I found that was very, I thought that was fascinating. No, that is, that really is. Um, you know, I stumbled across one that I, I thought was also interesting, community courts. Mm-hmm. Community courts taking on um, what at least here regionally we would call codes violations. So those would be anything from, you know, weeds to cars to broken down fences, etc. And when when we look historically at codes cases, we we tend, I think, I don't want to overgeneralize, but certainly looking at Ferguson, Missouri in the past, um, codes court was one of those courts that was generating a lot of fees, disproportionately impacting working poor and by virtue of the enforcement, probably the fixed income elderly by bringing in to me, it's just it makes a whole lot of sense when you look at it and you think, gosh, why didn't I think of this before? When you can bring people together and align them with resources in drug court, in child need to care court, in mental health court, why can't we do the same thing in community court? So that's not something I've ever seen here. But I love that problem-solving approach of it, and I think it's something that we really need to be stepping back and spending more time looking at. Now, I want to address something here because I I think probably what we're going to see is a mixed bag of responses here from all of our many three listeners. And Mom, Mom, what do you think? (laughs) Dad, I am going to take away your email ability. Um, (laughs) I think, you know, we might see a mixed bag of responses of, oh, well, how touchy-feely, criminals need to be, blah, blah, blah. No one, no one is saying that crime shouldn't be punished, but I think we need to take a little different look at what crime is. And regardless of what your position is on it socially, if you look at it economically, what we're looking at is, is how can we reduce reoffense? How can we reduce having to see these same people in court over and over again, or in the case of child needed care, juvenile court, multi-generational cases. Mm-hmm. The, you know, there are kids that I represented as a guardian ad litem who now have kids who are children in need of care. The system has failed them. Mm-hmm. And when we look at problem-solving courts, if we're doing our statistics, if we're ensuring that we are really searching for root causes I think we can not only drive down the recidivism rate, but we can absolutely drive cost out of the model, too, when we actually work to solve the root causes of problems. And that's funny that you bring up, um, you know, it's too touchy-feely, and we don't want people, you know, criminals need to be punished. In Las Vegas, when they were getting ready to start the um, Veterans Court, the ACLU actually got involved and sued because they were treating or perhaps the model was such that it would be creating um, special considerations for veterans. And that actually violates the Constitution because you can't take similarly situated defendants and treat them differently based on something like their status as veterans. So I thought it was an interesting position for the ACLU to take. True. But they were correct. True. But if you look at it a little differently, it's not that you're treating the person differently. It's that you're treating the problem differently. That's absolutely correct. It's a different root cause. And and one of the things that I think is so fascinating is, is, is how little time is spent on root cause analysis and how much time and energy is spent on symptoms and punishing symptoms. You know, it, it, a 22-year-old who had too much to drink and got a DUI, For a lot of people, that's the only interaction that they're ever going to have. It's the only crime that they've ever committed and ever will commit. And it was an unfortunate series of events that didn't end as bad as it could have. Not downplaying DUIs, just saying that's about the sum and substance of it. Sure. And the majority of DUIs are people who miscalculated when they ate versus how much they drank and Things like that. Or just rolled the dice one too many times and thankfully, hopefully had their wake up call. So instead, though, when when we're looking at root causes, every problem has a different potential. Let me rephrase that. Perhaps in a language our listeners speak. (laughs) Each problem 
may have some commonality in its root cause within a subset. So for veterans, there may be a common root cause that we can attack. So not similarly situated people, similarly situated problems. And that's what we're trying to address. And the majority of the veterans that we saw, that Judge Hastings saw in his courtroom, it was it was very much PTSD-centered. And <clears throat> given Las Vegas's unique climate, just being in Las of Vegas... Absolute sensory overload 24 hours a day. Well, not, not <laughs> only that... But if you were in, um, like, Fallujah, and you were in the city of Fallujah, there's a lot of concrete buildings. It's very hot. Okay. And so it, there was a lot of triggering stimuli just based on Las Vegas. Just being in the desert. And, yeah. And, uh, right. and then, of course, the, God, the the lights, the noise. Right, which is... Is, is problematic for anybody who's there for more than like 48 to 72 hours. It just gets to be too much. But that was one of the things that they that it was actually identified is that just that particular Las Vegas in and of itself was triggering and not for the reasons people would think. Yeah, that's that. Again, it's not about being touchy feely. It's not about being soft on crime. It's about fixing real problems. And once we fix a problem, we generally don't have to fix it again, and that reduces cost. And reducing cost means more money back into the taxpayer's pocket. So if we look at these things from an economics issue, it makes a whole lot more sense to say, hey, why aren't we addressing root causes more frequently and in, in reducing our reliance on so much punishment? So, so I, I did speak about my judge in Las Vegas, and I, I just wanted to... Um, give a little bit more context on that. That was Judge Cedric Kearns in Las Vegas Municipal Court. He actually started the Hope the Hope Court, which is the Habitual Offender Program. Um, eventually, they um, moved that to a different department within Municipal Court. And then he started the Youth Offender Court, which was for defendants from 18 to 24 who had problems related to the criminal justice system based on their addiction issues. He was, and I'm going to do this because I miss him. He was a 2005 president and board of directors of the Limited Jurisdiction Courts. He was a 2006 Outstanding Judge of the Year by the Nevada Judges Association. He's a 2009 Community Partner Award winner for the Foundation for Recovery. In 2013, the Nevada Supreme Court gave him the Legacy of Justice Award, and he was the first Limited Jurisdiction Judge to receive that recognitions. recognition. Sorry, you know, English is my first language. <laughs> And in 2016, he was named uh, the found, or he was given the Foundation for Recovery's Brick Award, which is the highest honor that they give out. And I would like to mention that he's an average golfer. But he said, did and he you has, just call him an average golfer, I did, just to grind his gears. Okay, well, this is great. Don't travel to Las <laughs> Vegas with Stephanie unless you have bail money. <laughs> but. Is the is the airport in the city of Los Angeles or is it in the Las county? Vegas or Las no, Vegas? It's I mean. not. It's in Paired. Uh, it's either in the county. Well, I know it's it's not in the city. Okay, so she can't get arrested coming off the airplane. Well, you never know. <laughs> I could make somebody mad before this is over with. But he obviously knows what he's talking about. He's a nationally recognized expert in this particular field, and he said that for specialty courts or problem solving courts. The one important thing to determine whether or not there's going to be success in a specialty court is the difference between a criminal who happens to use drugs and a person who commits crimes because of their dependence. And specialty courts only work for the second group. No, I no, I absolutely agree. And I think, you know, really at the end of the day, I don't think you and I are tremendously far, far apart on crime and punishment. No. There are good people who make bad decisions. They sure. should not this should not ruin their life in most instances. No. There are instances where one bad decision absolutely can and you know, I'm I'm sorry, it that sucks. There are also bad people who get to a point where they no longer deserve second chances. There are bad people who continue to make bad decisions. That's not what these courts are designed to address though. No. So when people think that this is all some sort of liberal, touchy-feely, I shouldn't even say liberal, but this touchy-feely, modern approach to jurisprudence, 
I assure you that no one that's ever appeared in front of Judge Kearns would think that he is either touchy or feely. <laughs> <laughs> he had no problem giving people therapeutic timeouts, which is what he called jail stints. I think we call that shock time here. Yeah, they do. You guys do call it shock time here, but in Las Vegas, it was a therapeutic timeout. That's funny. And sometimes it was for you would hear parents say that when I knew my son or daughter was in custody, it was the first time I'd slept in however many months. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there are so many circumstances that can affect families that take take a family off course, that take a child off course. And I think it's really easy to sit up on the mountain and judge other people. But I think if, if you could spend any time in these courts, and unfortunately, child needed care court, and I don't know about the other specialty courts, child needed care courts are closed. Mm-hmm. That They should be. These are kids sure. and families that are struggling. Um, but if you could spend some time in these courts, you'd find the really the same thing. My judge in child needed care court is, is patient, is supportive, is everything you want a judge to be, clear up until she isn't. And when we've reached the point where enough is enough, then we move on to the next phase. And that may be the the county attorney filing a, a petition to terminate parental rights. Judge will continue to be very fair. But at the end of the day, you've had a broad, long spectrum of time and a lot of resources thrown at you to turn things around. And, and if you haven't, at, at some point, you're making conscious decisions. You're choosing your addiction over your child. You're choosing that unhealthy relationship over your child. Mm -hmm. We don't require you to be gainfully employed to have your kids back. We have safety social nets for you. We do require you to be drug free. I think that's setting the bar pretty low. We also ask, hey, how about you be attentive to your child? And we don't find the four-year-old wandering down the street at three o'clock in the morning. Yes. And in the youth offender court that Judge Kern set up, not only did the families have to sign on to participating in this, um, the participants had to have a job, and there was a network of businesses that were sort of dialed into this and bought into this idea, which is what you absolutely need to have success in something like this that would employ these kids who had had some run-in with the justice system, and they uh, would stay at community housing, and every single one of them had a GPS monitor on and a curfew at night. Okay. So there were there were very clear expectations, and as long as you met those expectations, you were fine. But one of the tricky parts about addiction is that relapse is just something that happens. That's that's a part of the cycle. It is part of the cycle, and understanding and recognizing that it's going to happen, and knowing what to do when it does happen, is something that sets specialty problem-solving courts apart from other court systems because just regular uh, just regular courts without the the input from social workers treatment providers don't know how to handle the relapse because it's going to come and instead of just throwing them away we need to understand how to manage that well and I'm not sure it's not that they don't know how to manage it I think it's that's not what the purpose of the court is it's the purpose of the court. I, I, I mean, it's just brute force crime and punishment. That's true. That's true. I, I wish that in jurisdictions where there aren't specialty courts, that the the judges and the prosecutors would understand and try to implement some of the strategies that the problem-solving courts actually do have. But if you don't have the financial resources in your area to do that, you just simply can't do it. You are left with only one alternative, right? And isn't this how so many people who suffer from mental health problems end up in jail instead of ending up in, whether it's a a state mental health hospital or the community mental health provider? Absolutely. The biggest provider of mental health services in this country is the criminal justice system. Right. And, And we house a disproportionate number of people suffering from mental illness in jails instead of in hospitals. And a lot of times a drug addiction or drug use 
is people self-medicating because they can't get access to the medications that they actually need to manage their mental health issues. Because again, the drug use is a symptom. It is not a root cause. Exactly. And by getting into these problem-solving courts, again, if we could get more communities to understand, first of all, this isn't soft on crime, so you can stop that battle cry. It isn't a waste of money throwing resources good after bad. It's an investment in reducing the overall cost to your community. And when you talk about drug court and reducing drug crimes, reducing drug use, you're talking about making people far more productive members of their community, taxpayers, they're taking care of their kids, they're gainfully employed. There are so many benefits to this. And it doesn't have a damn thing to do with soft on crime. No, it's trying to get a grassroots solution to create a set of solutions instead of just this is A, this is B, now we do C. Because in municipal court, one of the best attorneys in the that I've ever met, she's probably the best defense attorney in the state of Nevada at any given time, said municipal court is a place where lives are ruined. And municipal court, at least in Las Vegas, was a place where lives were saved. And I was always so proud to be part of that, even though I wasn't administering one of these courts by myself, I wasn't the direct attorney for them. I filled in on a lot of them, and it always made me feel good that we were able to find solutions for people and resources that they didn't even know existed. And it doesn't always work. No, it doesn't. There were plenty of kids that were in the youth offender court that died. Yeah, and... and I can think of five off the top of my head. Or transition to adult crimes. And who are incarcerated today, and that's sad, and that's unfortunate. At least we tried. And I think that there is a lot of value there. And, you know, it's it's interesting, too. One of the courts that I saw was called a truancy court. And in our area, we actually have a lot of jurisdictions that have youth court. So kids who are not attending school, parent and child attend youth court, which is is governed by the school. And it has a, a mix of staff and students involved. And if you follow the, the requirements that were given to you out of youth court, you never see the district court system. If you don't, or if you choose not to participate in youth court, now we've got a truancy petition. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that are, that's interesting is, is, is that a lot of people think, oh, it's truancy. You got a kid, kick him in the ass and tell him to get to school. Well, y- you know, it's it's... One of those cases where it's a problem that's usually not the problem. Right. Again, not going to school is a symptom of something else. Seldom have I ever seen that it's a child not going to school just simply out of belligerence. There may be bullying going on. There may be other mental health issues. There may be depression. There may be um, sexual impropriety occurring. There may be issues at home that are keeping that child from going to school for fear of a parent being found out. Or because there's... Uh, no one to actually parent their younger siblings Yes, that aren't of school age. Absolutely. There are instances where a child can't get to school because they missed the bus because mom or dad or mom and dad had to leave for work at four in the morning. Mm -hmm. So by at least putting some light into this, we can start to identify actual root causes and again, start to solve real problems. It's kind of like when I first started practicing in this area, you would get these cases and, and they would be called dirty home cases. A child was removed because uh, the home was dirty. I'm a little triggered by that. And we're not talking about your level of dirty. <laughs> we're talking about hoarders. See, he just said that's <laughs> the dirty home. But he's not wrong. We're talking more about hoarders kind of dirty. We're talking about... Uns- Pet feces. Yes, unsafe yeah. conditions, unsanitary conditions and... And, and you, you hear people who hear about these things and they say, oh, my God, it's just a dirty home case. Get in there and make them clean up the house. Well, like so many things, truancy isn't just truancy. Right. A dirty and home case isn't just a dirty home right. case. It's somebody dealing with paralyzing depression. Yes, or yeah. some other mental health issue. And we need to get the right resources in place. Are we always successful? God, no, we're not. But you've got to put the effort in to try and and help the person. And then again, once you do that, at some point, affirmative choices are being made by the parent. And and you have to respond accordingly. Right. Right. And I mean, that's the same for any of the 
Especially courts that I dealt with. Well, and actually, it's any court, right? Well, for sure. But at least in the problem-solving specialty court arena, we're giving people the tools to make better decisions, whether they choose to avail themselves of that or not, is up to them. And it's a—it's amazing to me how many people are actually involved in. How many people you have to get to buy in to make a court successful? You either have to get the municipality on board, or if it's a district court or justice court level, um, you have to get the district attorney's office online. You actually have to have a defense attorney that buys into the treatment model rather than just constantly arguing for them to not go into custody, which is incredibly difficult to do. Right. Well, when you talk about uh, when you talk about a lot of these cases, these are court appointed attorneys. And, For sure. And, yeah. and, and, and I don't know of anybody that I work with that does this for the money because there isn't any in it. No. And know, this almost has to become a part of your personal ministry. Yes. And I struggled with it because I kept getting staying out of jail confused with protecting their constitutional rights. Sure. And that I still had the, you know, I'm on record as saying, I don't think that they need this. I think you can accomplish it with X, Y, or Z. But, I mean, occasionally I would get overruled, sometimes not. It just depended on what also the the team put in. The uh, I can't get the word. I should really not have a glass of wine when we're recording this. <laughs> and that's what we call a booze clue. <laughs> yeah. Did you see that video? The I did. I started I to cry. Did. Oh my gosh, that is so funny. Well, I mean, the it, kids watch Blues Clues, right? And and and, and you know, my my kids did not. They may have before they were my kids. Um, the so therapy team, therapy team. That's what I'm after. <laughs> but you know, one of the things that's interesting is even in problem solving courts, you still have a client. Yes. And you still have to advocate for your client. Yes. And in some instances, a client says, "I'm not going to do a mental health evaluation." So you have to argue right. on their behalf that they don't need to do that. Privately, you have to tell them, look, that may not be in your best interest. And I would offer them in every single case where they were, like specifically DUI court, because of where I was in the in in the hierarchy of this. I had a lot of people that I would refer to DUI court, and they would ask me, you know, what do you think about this? And I'm like, well, if you're not going to quit drinking or you're not interested in stopping drinking, it's really not worth your time. It's not worth everyone else's time, too. Right. If if what you want to do is argue and piss and moan, there, there isn't a whole lot I can do to help you at this point. But I would always ask them, please give it a try. At least right. go to go to the evaluation. Go to the initial meeting. Right. Go get an assessment. See where you are and really sit with it and think, did I get a DUI because I can't stop drinking? Or did I get a DUI because I can't stop making boneheaded choices? Right, right. And, you know, the frustrating part when you're dealing with some of these cases is, is you do it enough, you know, when you're dealing with a mental health issue. Yes. Or, you know, I guess you don't know. I can't say that I would know. But right. all, all indicators point to a mental health problem. And you have a client who says, I'm not doing a mental health evaluation because of the stigma that we have about mental illness about mental health issues and in being able to try and get a client down off the ceiling to say, look, you may have some mental health issues. Let's get the right resources in place. I'm not crazy. I don't need that. You need to get me my kids back. Well, unfortunately, right. those two things tend to go together, resolving the mental health issue and getting the kids back home. And one of the things that I was able to and I, I think I did a, a, there are a lot of things I don't do very well, but I think I did a good I job. Keep a, I'll keep a list. <laughs> it's got a running total. Alphabetical. And, order. <laughs> and by order of irritation. I would say, well, I have mental health issues. Right. It's nothing to be ashamed no, about. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And here's the other thing. Go ahead and try and convince me that you've never suffered from situational depression or periodic anxiety. And now imagine experiencing that all the time. Right. And that is overwhelming. And one of the one of the things about recovery that people don't know, unless they're actually in sort of the system, is that the majority of counselors who work in the recovery sphere have had addiction issues in the past. 
and they are continuing to work through their recovery alongside the people that they're trying to bring right. through the process. Right. So these are people who've been there, yes. who who understand the battle and who fight that battle every single day. In fact, I'd like to give a nod to um, my colleague and friend, Steve Altig, who is the... Uh, Got really excited there for a minute because she said <laughs> my name. That's not my last name, but that's the nature of our relationship. <laughs> Don't worry, it's not you. Um, he actually had a meth addiction and was a participant in Clark County um, District Court, Drug Court, came through that program with the help of and support of Judge Kearns, and he became the attorney for Youth Offender Court, and he did, he does it, at least he did do it, and I'm sure he still does, completely pro bono. It's his way of giving back to that community. That is phenomenal. That really is awesome. Is. So... Really, our point through all of this is, is, is that regardless of what your position is, if your position is that, that I am a child of humanity and I'm fallible and I understand other people are fallible and we need to be working together to solve problems, that's great. If it is that I'm tired of seeing money wasted on people going to jail and committing crime over and over and over again, and I've got an economics position about this, great. Step back and ask yourself, how might a problem-solving court in your jurisdiction actually help to resolve more problems longer term as opposed to incarceration or just this constant cycle of people coming through regardless of what the offense may be? And there is grant money available for people to start problem-solving courts. Um, In 2019, the National Institute of Justice estimated that there are 3,100 different problem-solving courts across the country, and there is government grant money there. There are also public and private partnerships that you can put together to, in in Las Vegas, the Nevada State Bank was a big supporter of Youth Offender Court and gave a lot of money, access to resources, and things like that, because they bought into the fact that this is better for the community. That's great. One other specialty court that I had uh, come across that was was really interesting to me was called Fathering Courts. And for anybody who's interested, by the way, the National Center for State Courts has a lot of great information on uh, the various types of specialty courts. That's where I got a lot of the information that uh, that I'm using today. You can reach out to them on the web at ncsc.org and just search Problem Solving Courts. So fathering courts is interesting because my first thought was child support court. And, you know, early in my practice, I did some court-appointed child support work. And that's really just trying to get your client, help them to understand how to get employed and stay out of jail for not paying child support. It really was not a problem-solving court. It was a, I'm coming to report how I'm doing but otherwise, resources were not available to folks. This fathering court, which as a man is a little bit offensive because there are women who also don't pay child support. That's correct. And But at, at the end of the day, it is what it is. Um, but the, the description was, was really interesting to, me, interesting to me because I think it really hits on what we're talking about. Purpose being to increase child support payments, reduce expenditures by the state, and improve the relationship between non-custodial parents and their children. So the first two are great in and of itself if your only position is an economic one. That second one, though, furthering that bond between parent and child, that's a whole other set of problems that we're trying to deal with outside of domestic court. Because let me tell you, for somebody who's handled any number of divorces, divorce court is not a problem-solving court. No, it That's is a lace-up-the-gloves-and-go-at-it court. And while I'm okay with that for your stuff, for your random pieces of crap that no one really cares about at the end of the day. Did you ever see that video of the people doling out the beanie babies that they had yes. collected together? Yes. Yeah. I, I had a case years ago where it came down to a DVD and the opposing party's attorney called me apologetic and says, I'm so sorry, this deal's going to blow up. I said, I have a target eight minutes away. I'm going to run up there and I'm going to buy the DVD. Exactly. And she started laughing. She goes, oh, my God, that's genius. I'll pay for half of it. Right. And then all of a sudden, Steve became a problem-solving court. Right. <laughs> but, you know, the, the the random pieces of crap, fine. You want to knock each other out and waste a lot of money on it. That's okay. But when we're talking about your kids and we're talking about the relationship between parent and child, 
mudslinging in the trenches, all out hand to hand combat is not exactly good for the long term relationship for co-parents. And it always, always spills over to the kids. And nothing awful as, for the kids. Nothing as parents happens in a vacuum. So if we could split apart the the stuff component from the kids component, and if we have a high conflict case, migrate them over into a problem solving court where we wrap them in resources and they pay for those resources based on ability, then I think what we end up with are better adjusted kids. And we end up with kids who have a tendency or at least a higher probability of having both parents active in their lives. And study after study after study tells you when both parents can be active and appropriate in a child's life, they do so much better socially, academically, and professionally over the long term. Fewer instances of involvement in the juvenile justice system, the ability to gain and maintain employment, the ability to develop and maintain interpersonal relationships. So while I think we've come a long way, I think there's still a, I think there's still a long road ahead of us. And here you're talking about a, a complete paradigm shift for attorneys. When you start talking about splitting up the financial aspects of a divorce from the family aspects of a divorce and making those family aspects a problem-solving court, again, only in high conflict, and there are no end of triggers to identify a case as high conflict. I think, though, at the end of the day, we do a better service for families, and isn't that what government is supposed to do? And isn't that what the judiciary is for? You know, there's been a lot of talk about criminal justice reform over the last probably five years. And these types of problem-solving courts, in addition to what you're talking about in the family realm, but in the criminal justice system, it brings together the community. Judge Kern suggested that I talk about this, and um, I think it really encapsulates not only the family piece that you've been talking about, but also um, the just the problem-solving nature of this, the importance of community. Dr. Bruce Alexander did a series of experiments in the 70s, and it's it's known now as Rat Park. Researchers had already proved that when rats were placed in a cage all alone with no other rats and offered two water bottles, one filled with actual water and the other one with water that was laced with heroin or cocaine, the rats would repeatedly drink from the, the bottle that had the drugs in it until all of the rats overdosed and died. Dr. Alexander started to wonder whether or not this reaction to these two different water bottles was about the drug itself, like if it was a, it was a biological component or if it was something else. And so he created rat parks. The rats, that were, the rats were then given the same two water bottles and but there was a whole community of rats and with they weren't isolated i guess is what i'm trying to say they could go you know say hi to the other rats they could play they could socialize they could have a little rat sex and they were given exactly the same conditions in terms of the hydration sources except the ones that were in the rat park remarkably preferred the plain water even when they did take um, like if they ingested some of the water that was had either heroin or cocaine in it, they did so sort of in passing intermittently. They didn't do it obsessively, and they never, uh, they never, not one of them overdosed. So the com- power of community and the power of socialization was what was able to beat the power of the drugs. And all of that is is also very interesting. And and again, when we get right down to it. It's about problem solving. And whether it is a a problem at home, a problem in the workplace, or a problem that's for the entire community, and that is any number of crimes, we really ought to be about identifying root causes and implementing corrective action for the root cause, not for the symptom. And I really think and feel, in my experience, we come the closest to that in our problem-solving courts. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I have been, I was incredibly spoiled when I was in Las Vegas because Clark County had um, problem-solving courts. The municipality of Las Vegas had problem-solving courts. And I always go back to what Franny said was municipal, municipal court is a place where lives are ruined. 
but they're also a place where we could save so many lives and we could help people without sort of the constraints of, of, of justice court or district court. So that, I think, wraps us up for today. I think we probably beat this horse dead. Dead. And uh, what are we talking about next week? I'm very excited. I've done this. I made it about 24 seconds. Next week, we're going to give a nod to the power of positivity. We're going to talk about an experiment where you go 24 hours without being negative. No, it's just 24 hours without complaining. Oh, not complaining. Right. So about the same thing, but uh, it's, I think, a little bit easier. You can cut that out. It's a little bit easier to think about it from a complaining perspective because that's an affirmative sort of thing. Um, I have done this. I did make it 24 hours. Um, it, I did not. It, well, okay. In all fairness, it took me about 473 tries. So <laughs> we'll get into all of that next week. Until then, I would like to remind everybody to check us out at Bovine Waste if you would like a satirical look at life. Uh, that is a sister podcast that I co-host with Nick. Um, I am also very excited to report that uh, we just launched Bovine Waste uh on Friday at midnight 01 on just one platform. And I want to tell you the response has been absolutely phenomenal. I'm so excited. We've had eight people listen to it. Three people have liked it and one person has followed us. So Thanks, Dad. No. <laughs> I'm <laughs> just kidding. In any rate, no, we. I, I'm absolutely thrilled that, uh, that three people even liked it. This is something that we've done. It's uh, started up. It's been a lot of fun. We hope that you are enjoying us. And keep in mind, as we get a little bit bigger, as we go a little bit longer, we're going to want some feedback from you. We're going to want your ideas of what to give a nod to. And I don't know that we've really gone terribly in depth with this. Stephanie and I both are nerds of many flavors. Many. You want to talk about 80s television? I'm here for that. (laughs) You want to give a nod to 80s music? Here for that. You want to give a nod to 80s big hair? I am all for that. Oh, I'm all for that. I still have Aquanet on cold storage in hopes that someday <laughs> big hair, it's coming back. <laughs> big hair comes back. So I'm vigilant on the big hair issue. While today was a social issue, that's not always what we talk about. This is just something that we're both passionate about for a little bit different perspectives. Um, as a, Both, though, wanting to achieve the same result. But it doesn't have to be anything social. We like to talk about a whole lot of fun things. And frankly, I couldn't even tell you what we talked about last week. We would love to have your feedback. Teen workers during the pandemic. Teen workers. That's what we gave a nod to. But we would love to have your feedback. And hopefully, um, pretty soon, we can get some suggestions and we can like put them on a little wheel and give the wheel a spin and see who is going to get a nod on the pod that week. Outstanding. So actually, if you'd like to reach out to us, you can do that now at anodpod, A-N-O-D-P-O-D, at weekendmediagroup.com. I do want to tell you that that goes directly to Stephanie. And if you want to bitch about one of us, she will cut you. <laughs> don't expect uh well, I don't know. I'm going to try to be kind, right? That's that's our motto here at, the, at Weekend Media is been, be kind. Been 50 years. We'll right? see if she can do it. All right, that's it. We're out of here. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. Remember, if you want to change the world, go home and love your kids. Be safe and be careful.